0: The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. So, good morning, everyone. So we'll continue looking at these practice slogans of Atisha, this 10th century Indian master, that we're taking up as a theme of our Ango. The slogan today, the first one that I want to look at is, Three Objects, Three Poisons, and Three Seeds of Virtue. The teacher, Judy Leaf, said, One way of looking at the slogan is that it is about the power of labels. It's about the way we categorize our world and what then happens as a result. At a crude level, and very quickly, we're always sizing people up. We put the people we deal with into mental bins, such as friend, enemy, are not worth bothering with. We do this individually and collectively. So this slogan is a good example of how the teachings very often traditionally are presented in a very, um, not always, but often in a very condensed form, and that need to then be sort of brought out, um, explained a little bit, or made clear. So the three objects are the recognition of how we um, experience anything in our world, Um, that in every moment, when our senses come into contact with something which is virtually in every moment. The sound comes to the ear, taste comes to the tongue, so on. There is a sensation, feelings, a second of the skandhas. And in that, there's just a direct contact with that sensation. And that happens because of the object, because of the sense organ, and because of our consciousness. And what that's telling us is that that moment of perception that we base basically everything we know about the world upon is dependent on those three conditions. So it doesn't just exist by itself. When we experience an object, when we look at a tree, we're not just seeing the tree objectively. It's not just something out there that our eyes see passively, but our consciousness plays a very strong role in influencing what we see. And then, as as Judy says, and then what happens as a result? What do we do next? And she says at a crude level, and very quickly, we size things up. And it's crude, we might say, because it's often um, diluted. It's permeated with our conditioned ways of thinking and seeing and our associations and past experiences, what we've been told, what we believe, and so on. But in another sense, it's rather sophisticated. It happens in an instant so that we don't actually see it happening. We don't see our eye making contact with the object and then being infused with our consciousness related to that organ. We don't see our history, our associations flooding in. Not initially at least. As time goes on, we are able to see that more with our practice, with meditation. And so in a way it's crude, it's kind of at a gross level what's happening, but in another sense it's it's pretty um, complicated. (laughs) And on the basis of that, as she says, we size things up. The Buddha said that fundamentally it's guided by the impulse towards pain, pleasure, or indifference, neutral, often in the teachings it's described as being neutral. That we either experience something that we want to, um, uh, it's like an automatic judgment and a kind of final sentence. It's a kind of a conclusive experience of something that in essence is saying either stay with me, go away from me, or whatever, I don't care, doesn't matter. Right? Whatever I see, whoever I'm seeing, means so little to me that it doesn't matter to me what it is or what happens next. And there's a lot of that, and that can be very dangerous. And at the same time, we tend to gravitate towards the pain and pleasure ends of the spectrum. And in that way, it's a kind of mercantile, of kind of uh, materialistic sort of relationship. What is this thing to me? What I want to do with it? Is it of interest to me? Or is it a threat? Does it augment or in some way increase my value, my sense of something, what I want, or does it diminish that, or does it threaten that? And it seems very automatic in the beginning of practice. <clears throat> I remember in the early years, before long before I came here and I'd be meditating and just seeing my mind respond automatically, it seemed, to things that arise. Something would arise and my mind would name it, would attach a label to it, would judge it, would often begin a narrative. And that seemed pretty automatic. I wasn't deciding to do all those things. It just seemed to happen. And I remember thinking, I don't know if that'll ever change. It was hard to imagine that not happening, because it just seemed automatic. And in a way, in that way, it seemed natural. Like, is that just what naturally happens? But then I saw it changing. I saw that it wasn't so automatic, it wasn't so immediate, so impulsive. Sometimes it didn't happen. And so because it's arising, really... You know, it's hard to overstate the importance and the profound nature of that basic understanding of how we have any any and every moment of perception, that it is dependent upon these various conditions. What that means is that no experience happens in and of itself, by itself, independent of anything else, which in another way is saying it's always happening in a dynamic and essential codependent relationship with other things, other forces, other influences, which in the largest sense is saying we are all bound together in the most important, essential, inescapable way. And so the kind of isolationist, individualist, you know, me-first, me-only view of things is not only grossly false, grossly wrong, out of touch, not in accord with how things are actually working. But because of that, and because of where it leads us, those views, it is, and we don't need any more evidence of this, profoundly and, in a sense, inevitably dangerous. We become a danger to ourselves and to others and to everything. And so to really begin to understand this, is in in a sense what this slogan is pointing at. When our labels become solid, Judy says, we can't see past them. We tend to only react, and in that way we do so according to the slogan in three dysfunctional ways. And so to be caught in that individual and collective sort of habit of friend, enemy, not worth bothering about, is in a sense, I mean, delusion could be thought of as a, as a kind of dysfunctional or not well-functioning way of being. And, you know, the evidence of that seems to bear that out. <clears throat> and so when we take the vow, all beings are numberless, I vow to save them, to alleviate suffering, to do all that I can in any way that I can, in every moment that I can, to diminish, to alleviate, that harm, the harm, any harm that is being caused, brought into this world. And at the same time, to be bringing forth all that is good, we have to deal with the sources of this dysfunction. So what gets in the simple way? What gets in the way of the simple desire to just be a decent person, be a good person, to do good things in the world? The three poisons. So the three poisons are what we speak of as the kleshas. Which are these very deep set, deeply set, deeply patterned, habitual impulses that sit very deeply, not just within our consciousness, but within our whole sort of being, our body and mind, they're embodied impulses. And so we generally think of them as greed, anger, and delusion, the three poisons. Sometimes that's expanded to pride and jealousy as well, but in different schools and different traditions of Buddhism, they can include laziness, a lack of faith, restlessness, a kind of skeptical doubt. They're all pointing to just sort of driving forces within ourselves that seem to have their own power, right? That something happens, I come into contact with something, someone, something said, something I see, something I read, I can be through any of the senses, and, and, a, and I, there's a reaction. Right? Very quickly, right? my mind sizes up the nature of that experience that I'm having, that reaction, whatever the object is that I'm in contact with, and brings forth, unsolicited, I'm not asking for it, I'm not saying I now choose to be angry, I now will be greedy. That's not how it works. It just seems to come forth. It does come forth impulsively, reactively. And it's in us. That force is in us now. We experience that anger. We experience that greed. It's in our body. It has a force. There's energy. It's got an impulse towards something or away from something. In a sense, it demands action. That's why the kleshas are considered the sort of quintessentially binding agents, the binding emotions, because they're so emotionally based, of our delusion. Because when they come forward with that force, and we're not practicing, we don't understand, they seem to be true. You know, it's like when we come into contact with something, you know, I look up and I see a person or I see an object, and I'm not aware that I am choosing to do something, right? There's just a kind of natural, automatic thing that happens. Then it seems to, what seems to go along with that is the conviction that that's a true experience. It's a valid experience, right? Because I'm not willing it to happen. And maybe that's also why these impulsive Emotions, these clashes, when they come forward, they also seem true. Because we're not deciding to have that emotion. We're not thinking, oh, this is the appropriate response to this. It's just there. And the stronger it is, maybe the more true it seems to be. Which means the harder it is to not believe in it, to not act out of it. Right? which is why our zazen is so important, because there, all the same stuff is happening, <laughs> you know, in a much more sort of rarefied, or, you know, less. there's much less stimulation. It's really just whatever your senses are picking up from around you, and then whatever's still going on in your mind, and we still go through the same stuff. On the cushion, sitting there quietly, somebody would look at you and think, oh, they look so peaceful. Meanwhile, you are creating wars and tearing down buildings and, like, you know, or saving the world. Who knows what's going on in there? (laughs) So it does not take much to set it into motion. And, of course, that's part of what's so challenging about it. But that's also, in a way, what's good about it because it doesn't take much. And so, for a practitioner, we can begin to see this Everywhere. The opportunity to actually see this, three objects, three poisons, and begin to turn this into practice becomes more and more ubiquitous. You don't have to wait for those special moments. Pay attention because you might miss them. No, there's another one coming, and another one coming, another one coming. (laughs) But without that awareness, without examining our minds, without mindfulness, it's going to be very, very difficult. And even if we are aware of what's happening — and that certainly is possible — it can be very difficult to go another way. Not impossible. People do it without Buddhist practice. But very difficult because the labels, the sort of whole structure, is still there, it still seems true. And what what begins to happen, what begins to come apart and begins to be seen through is with our mindfulness, those labels that have become solid or not so solid, the way in which we can't see past them, we can begin to see past them. We can see, okay, I, I feel that impulse. If I respond to it, I know what's going to happen. Because it's not the first time. I can see beyond that because I've cultivated that much natural ability in my mind, my mindfulness, my awareness, And perhaps because I am practicing the precepts and I am establishing that intention every day of how I want to be in the world. And even though I feel drawn to that, I don't want that. And so I pause, I slow down, I shift. I mean, just reflect on a moment when you have encountered something or someone and you have an instant reaction. It's like you're walking down the street or you see someone downstairs. Somebody steps in front of you while you're waiting to get your pasta, right? And you immediately, you don't know them, you've never met them before, and you glance at them, you don't even look at them closely. You don't have to. That's how how this whole thing, in fact, the less, the more carelessly you encounter them, the better from the point of view of delusion. Because then there's less actual input coming forward. If you slow down and actually see that person, see that person, then that's going to have the more potential to actually thwart or slow down that impulsive consciousness, which with much less discernment will just throw that person into category, because we've already got those categories built. We've been taught to have those categories. And we even have categories within categories. So within the categories of race, there are categories within those categories, within the categories of gender, or sexual orientation, or faith, or Buddhism. There are categories within categories. And our mind does that. I mean, it's a kind of miraculous aspect of our mind to sort of understand our world and organize it and be able to examine it and investigate it, but we do a lot more with it than that. Because they become solid, and we believe in them. And we believe that that crude level assessment is true. And so just reflect on that moment, and how full and complete our experience is, how true it seems, and how the body joins in and says, yes, and there's a kind of energy, right? Right? And it might come up as a kind of anger or a kind of resistance. I don't like that person. Or it might be a very different feeling. It might be a feeling of warmth, feeling of attraction, pain, pleasure. There's a kind of confidence in that experience. Trela Kyabgon says, recognize that our relationships to friends, foes, and strangers don't form in a vacuum, but depend on various factors and circumstances and conditions. It is very profound to see relationships in this way, because then we realize no one is a friend or a foe, in essence, in and of themselves. And then we see how quickly our relationships can change. Think about someone that you've disliked, that you've formed a whole narrative, a whole person about. And then you... Discover something about them. You learn something about them you didn't know. Or you see them doing something. They don't even know you're watching, but you see them do something. And it changes that view. Suddenly you see them in a larger way that what you just experienced is somehow, you know, doesn't line up with the narrative we've created about them. As I was reflecting on that this morning, I was thinking about a a dairy farmer that I worked with up in New New England many, many years ago, up up in... um, upstate New York. Very gruff. You know, no nonsense. You know, having come from the South, he he talked so fast. And I kept saying, you know, he taught say something say, what? 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 And he go, Are you stupid? Are you stupid or what? And I just couldn't he just taught I wasn't used to people talking so fast. And he was very gruff, and he, he, you know, he treated the cows like, you know, cows. And, but I came in one morning, very early. Usually I was the first one in there, because I had to muck the stalls and clean up and stuff, and then he would come in later. He'd actually already been in to do the first milking. But he was in there, and he was down towards the back of the barn. He couldn't see me. And he was sweet-talking the cows. He had names for them, and he would say, How are you doing this morning? Hey, honey. And I just listened to him and I thought, wow, he's never shown me that before. <laughs> and he looked up and he saw me, he, he got a all gruff again. <laughs> but in that moment, my sense of, oh, there's more to you. <laughs> there's more to you in my mind. There's always been more to you. But now there's more to you in my mind. We begin to see how important our self-awareness, our mindfulness, our precepts, our training are, how influential our circumstances and our environment are to either supporting and making it somewhat easier to practice in this way, or making it more difficult. Training in both circumstances is important. It's important sometimes to make it easier. You know, so that we're able to train and develop those skills and our capacities so that we're in more difficult situations, we have that to turn to. And the three seeds of virtue, having understood this, if, if, if desire, our greed, and our anger, and our delusion, our indifference, are the three poisons, then what are the three seeds of virtue? Freeing ourselves from our greed, freeing ourselves from our anger freeing ourselves from our delusion. Freedom from from greed becomes generosity. Freedom from anger becomes compassion. Freedom from our indifference, we might think of as engaged impartiality. Pema Chodron says, when you feel craving or aggression or indifference, you own it fully and wish that all beings could be free of it. And in this way, what usually causes suffering becomes a seed of compassion and loving-kindness, a seed of virtue. And this is the sort of the essential point of Buddhist practice, is that what we, we see, we encounter directly what has been before the seeds and the actions of our suffering. And now we see how in the same moment, using the same instruments of our body and mind, they become transformed, which really means our mind is being transformed. The things, the people, the objects have not been the problem. And as she says so importantly, you own it fully. There's no practice without that. We have to own it fully. And the world's a tough place, it's an unfair place, it's an unjust place. And that is everywhere. And that is true. And that seems to be a perennial truth. And we are in our own time of it. And it's serious. And that in and and that needs to be handled. We need to attend to that in every way possible. And at every step along the way to own fully my mind, my thoughts, my words, my actions, my perceptions, my view, my delusion. And so the next slogan says, in all activities, train with slogans. It's kind of interesting that within the midst, fairly early on in this collection of these practices, this slogan basically points back to those very things and says, train in these. Why? That would seem to sort of be implicit in the very structure of these. Judy says, once you understand the underlying point, of these phrases, to increase loving-kindness and concern for others, to decrease our self-absorption, our ego fixation, our delusion, then we can make up our own slogans. She says, this is practical. It can apply to everything we do. You know, there's so much attention, importantly, given in Dharma practice to how our language objectifies, distances, distracts, deludes, can diminish, can disregard, can divide, can harm. The Buddha was on to that. He was very clear about that. And he taught out of that clarity. <clears throat> and at the same time, that most magical power of language <laughs> that we have, to speak. To make sounds, like the sounds that I'm making, and that they make sense, I hope, and that they convey, that they can even convey things that are actually inexpressible by the very words, by the very vehicle of, the, of, the, of, the, of that which is communicating, to express the inexpressible. I mean, what kind of magic is that? And yet how recklessly we use it. And so there's also a lot of attention given to free, liberating, making truly powerful our language so that it it can liberate, it can point, it can dissolve, it can loosen, it can clarify. And of course, the language itself is not doing that. But it's that magic of language in your mind, in our minds, and the meaning that it comes, and our readiness for that, our being receptive to that, right? Why sometimes have you encountered a particular teaching over and over and over? You understand it, and it goes by, and then one time you encounter it, and it goes in deep. Why? Why now? Judy says, this applies. these slogans apply to how we are, as opposed to how we think we should be. The point of this training is not to smooth everything out, but to work with what is not smooth. To work with what is not smooth. Bodhicitta is recognizing, okay, things are not smooth. On a certain level, maybe everything is fine. And on another level, nothing is fine. And if we don't know that experience, then it's, we don't know it. But if you do know it, you know it. And that's the essence, not just of Buddhist practice, but of any genuine, seeking, practice-based tradition. Shrela Kyavgan said, it's not a matter of simply parroting these slogans, once we're familiar with them. We have to use them to bring about a real change in our outlook. This phrase is essentially about the concept of rejoicing. It's easy to harp on the negative. These phrases help us to bring forth happiness for the well-being and basic good nature of others. Because each of them are pointing to that. They're pointing to the basic good nature, the implicit inherent goodness, not inherent as in you know, permanent or self-existing, but as you know, just naturally functioning within each of us. Wanting to bring that out. Wanting to be there to be a bit more of that in the world. And so, in that way, slogans is like a way of seeing the moment at hand, the confusion, the impediment, the tangle, and just bringing a word or phrase to mind that helps. It's very simple. It helps to remember what we need to remember, it helps to bring our attention to what we're not quite clearly attentive to, to bring support, to bring confidence, to bring us back into our intentions, to remind us of our vows, they can work in many ways. I remember sitting here many years ago in Sesshin, and being very sort of dull and passive, and just sitting kind of peacefully, kind of happy with that, you know, just kind of dead, but, you know, peacefully dead. <laughs> On the cushion, (laughs) and then you know, just came to words came to my mind, and the words were, "You think you're going to live forever." Those are the words. You think you're going to live forever. It was like my my good brother was talking to me, and it was like, "I'm not. No, I'm not going to live forever." And it just woke me right up. And so sometimes phrases just come to you and have that kind of power in that moment. And maybe you carry them with you for a bit. Maybe they only last for that moment. It doesn't really matter. It's all upaya. And sometimes you need to bring them forth. What will help you in this moment? And what's happening in that moment, think about it. You're owning it fully. It's you. It's your life you're choosing it right now i was choosing it right then i could make that choice to sit in a dead way on that cushion that choice was free to me for me to make i could also make another choice and then the last slogan of today is begin the sequence of sending and taking with yourself so this goes back to this practice of sending and receiving where you is a meditation practice where you breathe in bringing to mind a person, or a group of people, or yourself in this case, and something that needs needs healing, needs relief, some burden, greed, anger, grief, sadness, despair, loss of faith. And you breathe that in. That's your generosity which means you're experiencing, you're having a sense of the experience of that quality, of that emotion. It's not abstract. You're not just breathing in a word, you're breathing in the experience of that. And then you breathe out, you send out, whatever will help to free that up. And so here, and, and generally, the practice is, is offered to others as, a, as a, not a practice as a form of compassion. Here the phrase is saying, begin with yourself. And in a very old teaching, the Vasudhu this is brought up in relationship to the Four Measurables, also spoken of as directing towards oneself. And the questioner, the student says, isn't that essentially self-centered? Isn't that selfish? Isn't that that violating the teachings, in essence? And the, the teacher, in the answering role, says, no, it's not. Because you're setting an example. Think about that. You're setting an example. You're showing yourself how to do that by doing it for yourself, to yourself. How wonderful. Judy says, you may want to develop greater compassion and the ability to take on the suffering of others, but what about yourself? Right? Are you part of this equation? What about your own suffering? According to this slogan, this is where you start. The suffering we dig up, where does it fester? What keeps it going? She says it's our avoidance and our fear. You don't have to be heroic. Just start by taking a little bit of your suffering, breathe it in. Accept it, little by little. You don't have to be heroic. That's very important to understand, on the heroic path of the bodhisattva, (laughs) because the bodhisattva is often spoken of as a hero taking up an heroic path to alleviate the suffering of all beings? Yeah, I say that qualifies. <laughs> but we can, we can hobble ourselves by thinking, okay, that means I have to be heroic, I have to be the hero now, and I'm not, because I'm struggling, I'm suffering, right? I'm self-centered, so what do I do? So she says, don't worry about being heroic which is just another way of talking about perfection. Just take on a little bit. Take on what you can bear. And in that way, because we might say within our sort of individualistic culture, self-promoting, is this just the same? Putting ourselves first? It says begin the sequence of sending and taking with yourself. But bear in mind, it says, begin the sequence. It doesn't end here. And how is this different, even in and of itself, when you're practicing this for yourself? Because it's coming from within a basis, or sort of standing on the foundation of the Bodhisattva vow, of this is a practice now to alleviate this suffering that I feel within myself so that I can see you, hear you, encounter you, not through the veil, through the confusion of my confusion, but as you. So in that way, relieving a bit of that of myself is already helping you. Liberating suffering comes from loosening the bonds of self-clinging understanding how it creates our unhappiness. Pema says, whatever pain you feel, just take it in and wish that every being could be free of it because whatever you're experiencing, it's not just yours. You know that, right? So many moments I'd be sitting here thinking, you know, just being convinced about my own particular form of misery or entanglement or I can't get beyond this. And then I would sometimes stop and think, wait a minute, I'm not that special. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I can't be that unique. This can't be the first time this has ever happened. And it was like, duh, obviously. And then it became more workable. <laughs> Whatever pleasure you feel, send it out for others. And Trelik says something very interesting in his commentary. He says, teachings are, say, tell us to develop this attitude also in relationship to inanimate objects. And this is so important. And I think this is particularly important and understood and made palpable in the Zen tradition. I mean, think about it. The attention in practice, and not just attention to how you walk, you know, how are you looking, you know, how are you dressing? But the thing in and of itself, the experience of walking, that when you are putting on your clothes, you're in that experience, that's the experience of mindfulness. That when we are cooking, we are giving, we are honoring, paying attention to, treating as worthy of our, of our presence and attention, that making of food upon which we depend that when we are cleaning, when we are eating, when we are listening, that we do that in that moment as though that's the only moment that's happening. That's our universe in that moment. That's what matters. And in that, it matters. We begin to come into contact with it in a way that it, it doesn't change. It's always been what it is our experience of it begins to change. Our clothes, our shoes, our tools, our utensils, our altars, our sitting cushions, our cars, our phones, whatever we come into contact with, our trees, our rivers, Shantideva said, those desiring speedily to be a refuge for themselves and other beings should interchange the terms of I and other and in so doing embrace a sacred mystery. That when we actually come into contact with life, with ourselves, with others, we enter into a sacred mystery. And that points to how when we look clearly and deeply and compassionately into one grain of rice, one person, one situation, one mind, we begin to discover it's much larger than that. A universe, a humanity, a past, present, and future, cause and effect, delusion and enlightenment. And isn't that why when we disregard or diminish another person, or an object, or a creature, we ourselves become diminished. When we act in that way, we may feel larger and more powerful because we are deluding ourselves to think we are, or we are subjugating somebody through force to convince ourselves that we are. But that's all just a false trickery. And it's not sustainable. It never satisfies. It never brings peace. Ever. When we indulge our anger, our hatred, and whether we turn it against others or ourselves, we cultivate a self and a life and a world of anger and hatred. And in that, there's very little ability for compassion. They don't go together. And so that's why when we cultivate compassion in our hearts, in our actions, in our speech, we begin to experience a world and a self that is that compassion. We begin to see it in others. We begin to enter into that sacred mystery. And unfortunately, you know, our habits, in a way, are like doors. That the more we, we work out of our habits, it's like you know, putting ourselves into a room over and over and over again and shutting the door in that room over and over, and that door gets stronger and thicker, so it's harder for other things to get through. It's harder to see that we're in a room and that the walls are getting thicker, right? And that actually it's, there's less and less air to breathe and that our life is becoming more confined. It's harder to see that. But nothing is fixed. I've seen, really, the most unexpected changes happen within people who would have bet all the money that they had in the world, which was sometimes not much, (laughs) that any kind of change for them was not possible convinced of that, about themselves, until it happened. (laughs) So I'll finish with a poem. There is, in truth, a sacred mystery. The wise ones have confirmed this throughout the ages. Sacred, it is the source of all beauty and wonder. Mysterious, it can be embraced intimately, yet it will never be fully known. Embraced intimately, it is now you. Never fully known, you are not it. Like a great heron at full wing, love it so deeply by never confining it to a cage. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.